Jasper should just have the cold open as I was searching for Mark Fisher quotes. <laughs> oh god, no! I can think of nothing shitter than the cold open just being like two incredibly sad 20-somethings being like, oh, Mark Fisher gets us. What was it he said? Welcome to this week's episode of the Social Review Podcast. I'm your host, Jasper, at JasperCH on Twitter, and we have a very special episode for you this week. It is Halloween, falling on Thursday, our typical podcast upload day, which means we are having a spooky Halloween special uh, in all its uh, cheesy glory. Um, And first up, I am here with Daryl Jones, who is professor in English at Trinity College Dublin, um, author of a bunch of texts on the horror genre, including Sleeping with the Lights on, the unsettling story of horror, and also dad of Morgan Jones, fellow social reviewer who you would have heard on uh, the podcast and who has written a bunch of articles uh, for the social review website and edited many more uh so daryl uh thank you so much for coming on to the podcast it's a great pleasure um so i wanted to talk to you first a little bit about the relationship between horror and politics because um i think that well i think it it seems to be a fairly like commonly agreed thing to say that horror is a very politically reactive genre um i don't know if you'd agree with that I would. I mean, I think more generally, I'd make that case for for popular culture um, mm. uh, as as a response to its times. It's generally it's generally a kind of first port of call or or, or a, a, a way of um, you know fingering uh, current anxieties most particularly. Um, mm. I think, uh, and given that that you know um, uh, anxieties and worries at a social and cultural level uh, are what popular culture is particularly good at, then it follows that horror of, of all popular cultural genres uh, should be the one that, that's perhaps best suited um, as, a, as a means of immediate comment on, on, on its given times. And what do, you, what do you think that says about, like, humans, I suppose, in, in, our, in our societies, that, that horror is that first protocol, that when we have these kind of concerns about... Uh, you know, Frankenstein is the most obvious example of like concerns about um, technological developments and uh, human augmentation resulting in Frankenstein, um, people being scared of clowns resulting in something like it, um, for example. Um, why do you, th- what, what do you think that says about us that horror is that first port of call? Uh, one of the things I think it says is that, that horror goes back a long way both historically and culturally, that, that some of mm. the earliest cultural documents that we have, uh, you know, from the very beginnings of of recorded culture, um, are are documents of well, you'd certainly call them violence and brutality. Uh, mm. So, uh, um, and I would want to call them them horror. I'm thinking of Greek tragedies, um, uh, mm. for for example. Um, so that there is something, uh, something very ancient uh, being tapped into here. Um, cognitive neuroscientists um, have have argued that, that uh, who are very interested in 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 horror um, have have argued that that um, you know uh, there there are there, there there there's there are good reasons for this in our very in our neural architecture. 
um, in, 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 in the evolution of the human brain that we, that we were evolved, that it evolved. Uh, we evolved surrounded by threats, surrounded by things to be anxious about, things to be scared of. Um, uh, and that, you know, for, for some people, uh, uh, horror is simply a continuation of, of this, 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 this very ancient, uh, primal, uh, uh, sense of, of what it means to have grown up human. That's interesting. I I always learn stuff uh, every every new episode of this podcast, and clearly this is when I'm going to be learning new stuff this week. Um, so horror is a means of talking about what we're afraid of within the worlds around us, um, as you said. Um, and in the 21st century, I think it would be fair to say that we are quite anxious and quite afraid of a huge number of things. We're afraid of the thinking in purely political terms we think we're afraid of um the fall of democracy we're afraid of results of democracy we're afraid of artificial intelligence some people are afraid of mass migration many politicians use fear as a way to rally their basis so trump is the most obvious example um of a politician in the west um doing that who holds high office um with with politicians doing that would you say that's a that's a recent development or do you think that's one of those things which has actually been around for a very long time. As far as I'm aware, politicians have always uh, tapped into public and social anxieties. Uh, the relationship between uh, politicians and the mob, um, for example, is itself an ancient one. And anyone mm. who, who, who reads or watches Shakespeare's Julius Caesar uh, uh, will, <laughs> will, will know this. You know, this that, that, that's a play that has a lot to tell us about the power of populism, the power of, of populist appeal, the power of rabble rousing, of, 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 of creating uh, uh, and, and inflaming passions in a mob. That's what Mark Antony does in his friends, Romans, countrymen speech, mm-hmm. you know, is, is, is he, he inflames uh, uh, the, 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 the populace. Um, so this, this is, this is very ancient. Um, uh, and, you know, the history of the 20th century uh, is, is very much uh, a history of, you know, these kinds of, of anxieties. And uh, yeah, you've, you're absolutely right to say that, 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 that here we are now, here we are now with Trump. Um, but and Trump is the latest in a in a whole tradition of kind of paranoid, anti-intellectual American uh, political figures. The the great American um, political historian Richard Hofstadter um, wrote a, a, a wonderful book called Anti-Intellectualism in American Life. Uh, that that it, back in the nineteen sixties that 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 traces this thread of this recurring thread through American life. He also wrote a very important uh, uh, essay on the paranoid style in American politics. Uh, And so, you know, this, and Trump is again, the latest beneficiary in this. So once you start talking about a political discourse of paranoia, uh, you're already in, in a world of fear a world of horror, and this is this is the world. Uh, this is the world that that, that that Trump occupies. We, you know, we have a lot to be afraid of now. You know, many of us do feel. Um, many of us on the left feel that, mm. that that we are quite possibly living through the last days of democracy. Certainly, the last days of a kind of social democracy. Um, and you know that that what we what we have um, in 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 America is. You might think of it as 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 democratic illiberalism, perhaps you know, mm. um, uh, and so there is an awful lot to be afraid of. There are lots of anxieties 
out there and these anxieties can 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 be played upon you know there, there have always been anxieties about uh, about about immigrants you know they come here they take our jobs or, or that 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 paranoid uh, uh, discourse and that you know finds its way uh, into horror in a, in a variety of forms and like one of the best places to start here I think is you know it's, this is quite simplistic and quite crude but 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 it gets us somewhere. The um, the great American um, uh, horror movie director John Carpenter, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the director of Halloween, um, of The Thing, uh, uh, and of much else besides. Um, Carpenter uh, uh, famously f- described or thought that horror could be could be divided into two fundamental types that he called left wing horror and right wing horror. <laughs> and and uh, in 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 the world of right wing horror. That which we fear, the locus of fear, is is out there, and it's coming to get us, and we need to protect ourselves against it at all costs. You know, there is a monstrous force, completely alien, completely other to us, and it's coming to get us. Um, you know, we see this in much kind of vampire fiction, um, uh, uh, for example, much kind of. Uh, uh, Anxieties about um, invasion fiction of various mm. kinds, and this very clearly plays into uh, contemporary anti-immigrant discourse. You know that, that there there is a, there is an inhuman, a monstrous force out there just beyond our borders, uh, and we need to we need to protect those borders, preferably by building a massive wall. Mm. Um, you know, mm. and and and, uh, and it is incumbent upon all of us as citizens to arm ourselves and protect ourselves against uh, this inhuman menace that's coming from the outside. So, so you can see why uh, that might be thought of as, 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 as right-wing uh, horror. And, you know, you can, you can think of a, a, a whole tradition of, of horror that does play on the monstrosity of the other, the anxiety of the other. There's a whole tradition of colonial horror. Uh, for for example, coming out of the British Empire um, uh, and, and, and the um, uh, 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 the anxieties that that, 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 that being out you know um, east of Suez um, as, as as Kipling would have put it uh, you know where, where Western gods uh, uh, no longer hold sway um, uh, and and that this is this is a world of you know it, it's an irrational world it's a world of of, of the exotic is an orientalist world, but it's also a world of fear and a world of monstrosity, uh, you know, and we need, we need to protect ourselves and we need to guard our values um, mm. against this. Um, so, you know, there's a whole tradition of colonial horror stories in which, you know, I, 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 either, either awful monstrous beasts come from the colony to, to threaten the metropolis. And you see this quite a lot in, well, even in Sherlock Holmes stories, for example, uh, you know, the, 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 these, the, these monstrous forces um, uh, coming from coming from the Indian Empire um, for, or the Empire in India, for example, um, and threatening London in a story like The Speckled Band um, uh, or, or, or in The Sign of Four and, and quite a lot of these uh, of these stories, you know. Um, so that's 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 right wing. Uh, uh, horror um, mm-hmm. in left-wing horror, the locus of fear is within us. What we need to be afraid of is fundamentally ourselves, our own capacity for monstrosity. Mm. Um, uh, you know, uh, the monsters are us. Um, Frankenstein is a very good example of this of this kind of uh, horror. I, I, I think you know one of 
whoever watches or reads Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, you know, the, 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 the major question that that novel, and I think all subsequent versions of it pose is, you know, who is the monster? Um, you know, is, is it, is, is it um, the creature? whom Victor Frankenstein creates, or is it Victor Frankenstein himself, um, or is it society? And this is this is very much the argument that uh, in Shelley's novel, uh, 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 that Frankenstein's monster himself makes. You know, uh, uh, you know, this is a novel that's freighted with theories about upbringing and education from the Enlightenment. And look, the monster says, you know, I, I I'm, I'm, I was born, a, I was created a tabula rata, a blank slate, a blank. Sheet, uh, I, I'm not inherently evil. If I am monstrous, it is because I, it, my behavior reflects the monstrosity of the treatment that I've, I've received. You know, I'm learning from the way people treat me. If I'm brutal, it's because I've been treated brutally. I've been shunned by society. Um, so this is, you know, in some ways, this is the classic liberals, um, uh, position, isn't it? Society is to blame. Uh, you know, mm. so, so so that that that's a kind of um, you might think of that then as a as a kind of left wing horror, and that that leads into uh, uh, all kinds of traditions then about uh, you know um, the and all kinds of uh, uh, subgenres about uh, you know the horror of the human mind, uh, mm. for example, um, uh, uh, of, of of various kinds of psychos and slashes um, of of of, of madmen and maniacs. Um, the, 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 the we are the monsters. That was a fascinating insight into left-wing and right-wing horror, as you said. Um, do you think that to create either left-wing or right-wing horror, you necessarily need to personally align with those ideological convictions? Or do you think they can sometimes come about just as a result of the socio-political climate which you live in? I don't really think you need to, you know, I, I, I um, rarely, if ever, are um, uh, uh, writers and artists, straightforward propagandists. Of course, they have mm. political positions, and you, you might want to say that. Okay, in in a case like Frankenstein, this is this is a reflection of of of, of the kind of radical climate of political radicalism in which Mary Shelley herself was certainly raised and steeped. You know, th uh, uh, through her own education and background, through her family, through her marriage. You know, so it would make sense. Um, for uh, Frankenstein, perhaps, to be a, a politically radical text. Um, a, a number of ghost stories um, are, are often... The ghost story can often be a very conservative form. Uh, you know, it... it, it, it um, a great... It, it, it teaches a great respect for the past, for its institutions, for knowledge and learning. You know, we, we, we tamper with these things at our peril. Uh, you know, it, it, it's not everybody that's meant to open a book because opening a book is, it can be a very dangerous thing. You know, <laughs> education can be a very dangerous thing. Uh, and, uh, you know, the great English ghost story writer, M.R. James, who is of all horror writers, the, 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 the figure that I'm probably most interested in, was himself an extraordinarily conservative man, you know, politically and personally. Um, you know, he, he was, um, he was, the Provost of King's College, Cambridge, which was the most conservative college in the most conservative university at the time, and um, used his institutional position. He went on to become Vice Chancellor of Cambridge University, used mm. his in, in, institutional position to block wherever he could 
any modern endeavor that came his way um, from degrees for women. Cambridge University did not um, uh, award degrees to women uh, until as late as 1948, so considerably later than Oxford. I've just um, I've just started at Cambridge a couple of weeks ago, and my college um, didn't admit women until 1981, I want to say, 1983, one of those early 80s. Okay, yeah, so this is, this is unsurprising. <laughs> Dif- different, different colleges and different institutions have different kinds of traditions and backgrounds. Some are more conservative than others, some are more radical than... Uh, uh, than others, um, but certainly in the, you know, in uh, in the turn of the nineteenth into the twentieth century, uh, Kings was the most conservative um, of them all. It it had until re- quite recently been a been a closed corporation. It was only um, uh, open to uh, 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 students who had been who had been at Eton, mm. um, and James himself had been at Eaton. Um, so you know, the, 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 there is a there's a very clear line to be drawn between the conservatism of a writer like M.R. James, the personal conservatism, and the ideological conservatism of the ghost story form um, that, 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 that he adopts. Um, but I, but, but beyond that, you know, I wouldn't want to be too prescriptive about this. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're a very good example of somebody who is who is politically all over the place in his writing, I suppose, would be Stephen King. Mm. Um, now, now King is, uh, uh, you know, avowedly a liberal Democrat, uh, 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 an American Democrat. Uh, you know, he is a very trenchant um, uh, uh, critic of Trump and Trump's America. Um, he is a man of, you know, of what, for, for, by American standards, would be a man, of, a man of the left. There's no, there's no doubt about that. Um, his writings tell a rather different story. Again, that they are, they are politically and ideologically all over the place, often, you know, extremely conservative, extremely traditionalist, uh, um, sometimes very anxious about modern developments from the very beginning. His first novel, Carrie, um, uh, he described himself as his own, uh, I'm going to use the word anxious again, because I think that is the word that he uses, his own anxious response to what was then the, the women's liberation movement, to feminism and what feminism had to um, uh, uh, the threats, as he thought, as, as as he saw it, that feminism brought to a man of his generation, kind of the American baby boomer masculinist generation. Um, mm. so, 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 King's King's the politics of King's work is 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 just all over the place. Um, uh, you know, some, sometimes extremely conventional, extremely conservative, uh, uh, sometimes, um, you know, very obviously coming from a, from a liberal perspective. Um, so you don't want to, you, you can't be too prescriptive about these things. Thinking about MPs, um, uh, what we're going to be doing throughout the episode is, is thinking about, um, what is spooky about modern politics and, um, uh, what we were discussing a lot when, considering doing a halloween episode was who the spookiest mp is and who the scariest mp is um so i wonder is there any any mp in particular um not 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 being in a, in, a, in any kind of vindictive in vindictive way but is there any mp in particular or, or modern political figure who you would say oh yeah they are definitely the scariest or the spookiest uh well obviously boris johnson is is currently the scariest person um uh in in these islands mm. um, so uh um uh but I think that's that's too simplistic and too, too that's too straightforward, even if it's the right answer. Um, you know, there is there is an element of the gothic about 
uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg, you know, in, in, in his, you know, arch and affected formality, as though he belongs in Gormenghast. You know that that's 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 where he comes he comes out of this 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 un, unreal uh, 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 world. So so I you know he so he's a pretty um, you know he 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 seems to belong into the Adams family or something like that, <laughs> doesn't he? Um, so uh, um, th- then there th- th- there are you know kind of bloodless and, and 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 sort of unsettling individuals whose 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 affect their way of being in the world uh, is there's something unnerving about it frank field i think uh would be would be a good example mm, um, of, of, of someone like that uh, uh for me i've never met uh, Frank Field, he and I would not agree politically. I'm I, I'm very well aware of that, uh, and for all I know, um, he's a he's he's a, he's a lovely, charming, uh, uh, and suave uh, person. Um, but his affect um, is it, it, uh, is is very uncomfortable making and quite sinister for me. And famously, of course, there was the, um, the, the there was that very damning uh, um, comment that that that. that um, uh, that Anne Widdicombe, um, a rather gothic figure, uh, um, uh, made, made about Michael Howard having something of the night uh, about him. And now I think that, that there was an element of uh, of, of racism and anti-Semitism about this. Mm. Um, that that, that um, uh, uh, Michael Howard is is a Welsh and B um, uh, of Lithuanian Jewish origin mm-hmm. and i think you know she, she was tapping in to these kinds of dracula type uh, 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 uh anti-semitic discourses um but 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 she was on to something as well i think um uh although you know um there's something about moats and beams isn't there um that that that, that uh you know uh that, that one of the one of the least um kind of uh uh uh, as socially able, one of the 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 the, the most dotty uh, uh, of of political of recent political figures, uh, Anne Widdicombe, uh, should mm. accuse another politician of of of, of being um, you know unnerving and scary. I think Anne Widdicombe is unnerving and scary. I would agree with you. You know, what? I hadn't even considered, I hadn't never considered the term gothic when thinking about Jacob Rees-Mogg. But now that you've mentioned it, I can totally see it. I can't unsee this. <laughs> he shares a wardrobe with Gomez Adams for, mm, for mm. Thing, you know. This has been absolutely fascinating. Um, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast, Aaron, and talking about horror in this um, particularly spooky week of Halloween. Um, if you've been listening to this and enjoyed it, do go check out Sleeping With The Lights On, the unsettling story of horror and uh, the other work of uh, Daryl. Um, and yeah, thanks again for coming on to the podcast and talking about this. It's been a great pleasure. Happy Halloween. And you. Hello, it's Joe slash Dean Tams from Twitter making a dramatic return to the podcast this week for our Halloween special. Uh, this section is going to be about Mark Fisher, and I am joined by fellow Mark Fisher superfan Pete Whitehead. Do you want to say hello? Yes, hello demons, it's me, your boy. Um, <laughs> it is Pete, which is at PeterYhead5 on Twitter. Mark Fisher was a British writer, uh, critic, cultural theorist, philosopher, and blogger famous for such works as Capitalist Realism, 
um, and Caperpunk, which was his blog, and that has recently been turned into a very large um, book, a collection of blog posts and pieces from that, um, as well as elsewhere, I think. Um, but why, Pete, are we talking about Mark Fisher for our Halloween episode? Oh, well, I think I think there are two, basically, main strands of that. I think, one, uh, Mark was really interested in um, in issues of horror. You know, he, he, he wrote a book called The Weird and the Eerie, which really looks at both, you know, sort of horror films in and horror media in general and how they function, but also throughout his work, you see the invocation of the creepy side of capitalism. So you've got this idea of capitalism being a creepy, weird force in of itself, and also he is, you know, probably most famous or most well known and respected for his work on the idea of hauntology, which he borrows from Derrida. Yeah, and that hauntology, for those that are listening and aren't aware, is sort of this idea of um, uh, developed with Simon Reynolds as well, right? Like, yeah, like yeah. Music critic. Um, so, in like, and sort of. A nostalgia for lost futures, I think, is the line in Ghosts of My Life. Um, it is. This sort of idea of things being slightly out of joint time, t- temporally, is that correct? Temporally out of joint? Yeah, no. Um, I think first we should probably deal with why, why it is that capitalism is creepy. And this is something that basically goes back to Marx. So, you know, you have in Capital, Marx talks about Capital as being kind of like vampiric. This idea that it lives by sort of sucking the lifeblood out of living labour. And the more Capital is there, the more the more it sort of, you know, extracts. And that's really interesting. And you know, Marx is quite a good writer. It's a really cool metaphor. But I think the reason that, you know, we should talk about it in terms of Mark Fisher is Fisher was, I think, less concerned with grand economic critique in the manner of Marx, and instead focuses more on what it's like to live under capitalism, what late capital feels like, you know, what is this doing to us in a sort of psychic sense. Um, And, you know, horror is a genre where you feel a lot, like, you you know, you have sort of body horror, which induces this visceral reaction from people, you know, the best horror supposedly produces physical effects, it makes your hair stand up, or maybe it makes a sort of chill go down your spine. Um, And, you know, and this is something that is scattered throughout Fisher's work, you know, in in The Weird and Eerie, he writes about capital as, quote, at every level an eerie entity conjured out of nothing, Capital nevertheless exerts more influence than any allegedly substantial entity. And I think understanding that is probably a really good jumping off point to his like main creepy idea, which is this idea that we are haunted all the time by the ghosts of futures that never came to be. So I think that, um, you know, yes, capitalism is creepy because it exists in our lives in this incredibly tangible way we can we can feel it we we not to do the whole we live in a society uh but you know we 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 live in it um and in many ways i think you know what maybe one of them maybe one of the ways you can really understand contemporary capitalism 
is through the sort of Lovecraftian lens. Because in Lovecraft, you have this idea of cosmic horror, this idea of the paternalistic gods of the major monotheisms that we understand. And they're replaced by these cosmic entities that just don't care about you at all. I think that's a really good way of understanding some of the transformations that we've seen in capitalism, because it's really easy to harken back to an era of capitalism where things were nicer and you know capitalism has always been brutally exploitative but certainly you know you, you can go back to an era where companies felt they had at least some level of social responsibility and sort of post thatcher post 80s you know sort of with the advent of neoliberalism with the advent of you know the chicago school what you basically have is capital transforming into this Lovecraftian monster, so this cosmic entity that's hugely powerful and just doesn't care about you, but is simultaneously everywhere in your life. I think that's something that you know Mark Fisher gets into in the Weird and the Eerie. But back to hauntology, which you know is probably the quintessential Fisher idea. So. The, the, the idea be, between, 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 behind, the idea behind hauntology is that we are haunted by, as Joe said, the futures that never came to be, which sounds really sort of theory wank. Like, you know, when, yeah, I think when you try and explain it like that, I think, you know, it's very easy for people to go, oh, you know, congratulations, like, you know, attend the crit theory seminar, have we? But it is a really important idea because of course the future has still happened time hasn't stopped and it has you know time has continued to pass but when we think about the future the way we experience it i.e the idea that some something might change or things might get better or be different or that you know our lives can meaningfully improve or or even that there are new ways of being like new economic systems new modes of culture new forms of art fisher's idea is that the, the this whole idea of future has itself died you know you have people like fukuyama writing about the so-called end of history and particularly in the sort of again 80s and 90s i think there was this cultural idea that we were living in the end of history the soviet union had collapsed and history at least as understood as the battle between capitalism and socialism had ended and what mark points out and brilliantly so is that living in that period is fucking miserable yeah i guess it's, it's that sort of period of time when the post-war consensus has fallen away. You've got sort of Thatcherism. There is no alternative, which is sort of explicitly, explicitly, almost encapsulating the the idea of capitalist realism in in that one line, in that one slogan, in her speech. Like there is no alternative, and and that was that becomes the feeling. And when when we think about sort of um, the way um, sort of new labour. Um, was constituted that is that's so heavily based in this idea that that there is no other way of being and it's just like this this is this is what there is and this is and we have to sort of deal with it and um i think mark fisher sort of captures that that feeling that i think i think is 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 held to an extent by by many people that, that this idea that 
um well the, the quote is like it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism i think one of the things mark fisher um does is he describes the way in which this sort of attitude that capitalism requires is the same attitude as the depressive so um I've got the quote in front of me because I'm really well prepared. But um, the attitude—it says—he says the attitude of realism that dominant capitalism requires is essentially depressive. The management of this collective depression goes through a series of thresholds. First of all, we come to expect very little; nothing will ever happen again. Then we think that maybe the things that once happened weren't actually so great. Finally, we accept that nothing has ever happened, nor could ever happen. The more that depression is normalised, the harder it is to even identify it. Radically lowered expectations become habituated. Time flattens out. And then he says, This generalised depression is one reason that so little has happened since the major capitalist crisis of 2008. Now, I wonder in the age of Brexit and Trump and Corbyn and Sanders whether things have started happening and whether, um, I think, in... Uh, an essay mannequin challenge uh, that I think didn't actually ever go up on his blog, but is in uh, the K-Punk collection. He, um, I think it's mannequin challenge. Someone will correct me anyway. Um, uh, Sound off ta- in the comments. <laughs> he talks about um, this idea that with the election of Trump and Brexit, um, you sort of see the this these signs that capitalist realism is breaking down, but it's not capitalism that's being challenged it's like it's realism that's being challenged like um trump is this fantasy of national revival um and and so i wonder now if we're at a stage where people are imagining an alternative and some of those things that they're imagining um might not be particularly pleasing and may just be um capital reasserting itself but you can also see in sort of the 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 movements um from the left particularly sanders to an extent the left of the labor party um and uh, aoc um are the beginnings of sort of a challenge to the idea of capitalist realism i don't know maybe it's nothing and maybe capital will reassert itself but um you can see the beginnings of something there i think I, th- I, I, I think so, and I think it's actually, in relation to Fisher, it's really interesting that it's um, Sanders and Corbyn that have come to represent this reawakening of the left in the atmosphere. <laughs> because I think that there are two elements to it. One of the things that I think temporally comes through, it, comes through in Marx's work is this idea that because we cannot envision any real future we have to escape back to a past where there could have been a future that's one of the effects of being haunted so we have this nostalgia in you know on the left for the 60s because back then it felt like things could change in the 70s it felt like things could change and we escape back into that and you know it's one of the reasons that We we mentioned mentioned earlier that he talks about culture so much. It's one of the reasons that he he argues that it happens so much in music, these, you know, these callbacks to the sort of 70s all the time, because back then it felt like new things could happen. And I think Corbyn and Sanders represent these people from before the temporal shift of Thatcherism and late Reaganism, 
you know, it's these only these people can save us from the lack of future because they remember a past where there could have been a future. And that sounds all very X-Men. But, you know, we have this idea of Corbin's a figure of the past, proper old labor, who's, you know, who's going to come into town and save us like some sort of cowboy from the sort of terribleness of the, of the present in which we live. And Sanders, I think, has the same thing. You know, one of the things that is thrown at Corbin all the time as a sort of critique is this idea that he's going to take us back to the old days. And one of the things I think is interesting is, particularly last election, like 2017, what I think is really interesting is, the, like, there was a really popular, I think this really sticks in my head, because I think I discussed it with, like, Morgan. There's, uh, in fact, I think it's in Morgan's uh, undergrad thesis, which was this, there was a meme about um, Corbyn's going to take us back to them, Corbyn's going to take us back to the 70s, me. And it's like this like guy in like, a, like an 80s like flares and stuff, like doing like finger guns. And like, you know, and it's, it's this idea that, yeah, you know, if you're going to take us back to the past, so fucking be it. Because what we have right now is so shit that this must be better. So I, th I, th I think, you know, that there are. So <laughs> I think there is rather a real relevance to Mark's work in this emergence of Sanders and Corbyn. But I think AOC in particular represents possibly one of the first real breaks in, like you said, the realism part of this, because AOC is this young, you know, woman who represents so many sort of millennial people, i.e. she's very clever, but spent ages stuck in an incredibly shitty post, like, 08 crash job. And the fact that she has sort of become part of this resurgent left, I think would be something that Mark would be really happy about because I think he'd see it as, holy shit, the edifice of realism is starting to crumble. There are these disruptive cracks where things are starting to cr creep through. The, the, this idea that there might be things that can happen, that things might be able to change, I think for the first time, is starting to come through. You, you know, you even see it in John McDonald's video, you know, which I think, I think, he, I think it was like today or yesterday where he's talking about giving people hope again. And what he keeps on saying is, is that things don't like to be, things don't have to be like this anymore. And it's that idea, which I think is so brilliant <laughs> because it sounds so simple, but we have, I don't think we've heard that. For ages, I think, for so long, the message was effectively, this is how things are, and we can tinker around the edges to make it better. And it's been a very long time since a politician has said, things don't like to, things don't have to be like this. If you enjoyed uh, this segment, we are planning on doing a full Mark Fisher episode soon, where we have um, dedicated lots of time to uh, it, and we can do a proper full-length episode all about his work, which we're excited for, me and Pete particularly. Um, so if you enjoyed it, look out for that. Um, thank you. <laughs> and enjoy Halloween. And good luck with the election campaigning. <laughs> oh shit, yeah, yeah, like, you know, get on the doorstep. But yeah, also yeah. enjoy Halloween. It's been real. Get on the doorstep for trick-or-treating. And... Um, canvassing maybe Combined the real it. treat was the labor governments we found along the way <laughs> <laughs>
Hello and welcome to the question segment of this week's spooky Halloween special social review podcast. Um, apologies in advance for any audio echoes and such you might hear. We've got a unique setup. Some of us are recording uh, together in person and we've got uh, someone else over the line. So I'm here with Henry. Hello, I am Henry. Um, and uh, Eugenie is joining us from across the internet. Hello, Eugenie. Hello, how are you? I'm good, thank you. I have a cold, <laughs> which is not good. Um, cool. So we've had loads of questions this week, which is quite exciting. Uh, all spookily themed because we refuse to answer anything else because it's Halloween. Um, but uh, but people have done a very good job of theming them around Halloween. So um, Alex Charlton, so at Alex J Charlton asks, is it Charlton or Charlton? I hope I'm pronouncing your name right, Alex. Sorry. Um, Marx described capital, dead labour, feeding off living labour as vampire-like. What monster best suits neoliberalism or our current political system, economic system even? Um, Eugenie, what do you reckon? I think you can make a strong argument for the alien from Alien. Uh, you know, if you're thinking about, um, you know, maybe what the the horror that neoliberalism embodies, something which a character describes as the perfect it, organism, structural perfection matched only by its hostility, unclouded by conscience, remorse, or delusions of morality. I think that's a pretty good explanation of how neoliberalism uh, works, and certainly maybe one could argue that it was born, um, you know, it burst out of John Hurt's chest in 1979, and, uh, you know, we've all been running away from it ever since. We, we were talking about this just before we started recording. The timelines do match up. Margaret Thatcher was elected in 1979. Ronald Reagan not soon after. I think we're on something here. We've John got... Hurt also a noted uh, Norfolk president. So really? Just putting it out there. Are you just going to out... <laughs> are you doxing yourself on the podcast? I think it's, I think it's known. I think it's do you live in Norfolk? Now. I'm a Norfolk boy. Well, for anyone listening, Henry lives in Norfolk. You can go to his house and throw things. You know more than one person lives in Norfolk. Well, <laughs> I don't know that. Maybe they don't. John Hurt <laughs> used to. Yeah. Controversial to some. <laughs> um, what other questions have we got? Oh, yeah. Um, Professor Miniva McGonagall at uh, Mini V Rose, which is a fantastic name. Uh, which classic horror movie villain is more likely to be a socialist? I'm talking The Mummy, Frankenstein's Monster, Dracula, etc. Um... We were saying, um, you were saying Frankenstein's monster, weren't you? I was saying Frankenstein's monster. Because yeah. I think in terms of, like, uh, this creature created by an unequal power structure and exploited by a kind of a, a manipulative scientist who is, like, abandoned, who do... If I remember rightly, all that, all that Frankenstein's monster actually wants is just to be appreciated or to be, like loved and he ends up isn't it that isn't the plot of the book which i haven't read in years <laughs> that he ends up like um going after some people in an effort to like make friends and they just get terrified and like lynch him basically so yeah i would say i feel that there's a strong i think that when once you've experienced that kind of injustice and the kind of structural discrimination especially mm. towards monsters that to this day we see in our society i think that you you would be a socialist i i'm i'm willing to bet that Frankenstein's monster is rarely for monsters, so I'd say generally generally uh, demonstrate enough kind of exploitative behaviour to be more on the right wing right wing side of the spectrum. I think Frankenstein's monster is is woke. But do you also think like maybe get, if if it was in our current political climate, Frankenstein's monster would become like alt right. Like oh, I've yeah. been discriminated against, I'm gonna start a xenophobic blog. Yeah. Frankenstein rights, like green rights. That is a worry, to be fair. Yeah. That is a worry for 
a lot of things just in general. That they become all right. Yeah. yeah. Like, if, if, basically, if, but then equally, Frankenstein himself, the name of the scientist, could well be like a kind of 4chan poster who's very mm. big on his rationalism and his uh, mm. how, how big his IQ is. So maybe it's kind of a revolt against his his father, his uh, yeah. weird, weird kind of godfather thing. Maybe we'd see maybe we'd see uh, Frankenstein's monster going that path. I feel like there's a there's a strong new atheist vibe as well to uh, to making a making a, a monster and saying like I am the modern Prometheus or whatever. <laughs> so yeah, so I'm saying I'm willing to say this like an Oedipal thing at least like kill your fathers. Frankenstein's monster would kill his father by turning away from Richard Dawkins. Anyway, that was truly a wild ride. Yeah, that's welcome to the inside of my brain, I guess. <laughs> um, cool. Other questions. What have people said? Ah, um, Elliot Callender. Sorry, sorry. Right, I'll shut up. God, men talking over women. Classic, classic. That was the true horror of neoliberalism. Um, no, I would definitely argue also that maybe not who is a socialist, but, you know, when you were thinking, I was trying to think about who else, you know, horror, iconic horror villains. And I would say definitely Norman Bates uh, of Psycho fame is a uh, Tory. You know, he's a he's a small business owner concerned with uh, family values. <laughs> See, I'm cracking myself up here. <laughs> <laughs> we, were also, we also decided that Dracula was, a, I believe, a small business conservative just before. Or, like, sorry, a landed aristocracy. Yeah, yeah, he is, he is. conservative immediately before the recording. He is fully, so, ar- he's, arist- he's an arist- aristocrat. He is. He is. He's Eastern European or Central European. Mm. Austro-Hungarian. I feel. I've actually not read Dracula. I, I don't. I don't know. <laughs> he's um. He's he's definitely European in yes. some sense. He's well, a he, count. He's a count. Yes. So Transylvania. Transylvania is Romania. In, yeah. Well, in Romania or near Romania. In Romania. In Romania. Okay. Elliot Calendar at Elliot C ninety nine. A general election in December. Trick or treat for Labour. Um, nice sneaky question there to get to talk about things which aren't specifically spooky. Uh, so this question was actually asked before last, well, last night for us is vote um, for the general election. So there will be a general election in December. It is happening. Brilliant. Eugenie, what is your take? Is 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 the December election going to be a trick or a treat? Hmm. I think it has the capacity to be both. <laughs> this is such a non-answer. But I... At the moment, I'm leaning towards trick, not because I think, oh, this is like an open goal and like Labour have like squiffed or whatever, but I just like, I have like such a strong feeling that we're going to get literally the most ridiculous result from this, where like ultimately everything, lots of things move around, but things kind of end up being the same. So it'll be something stupid like Labour win more votes, but lose seats and the Lib Dems gain more seats, but you know, the Tories have a minority government, even though Boris Johnson's lost his seat, you know, it would just be like some, like, truly, as we are living in the worst timeline, I just feel like the only, you know, the only explanation for the the ludicrous outcome of this will be, like, something beyond farcical and kind of lands us back in the same boat we were in when we started with. So, I mean, treat in the sense of it's going to be very, very, very weird to live through, but, um, trick just because god nonsense i can feel it it's coming on the horizon a bit of nonsense just before christmas i actually lean towards obviously you know british politics is a land of contrast and all that i lean towards thinking a december december general election is 
a treat I, for Labour, I think. Whether or not that's a treat for other people is obviously a different issue. Whether it's a treat for the electorate, I think, is a distinctly doubtful. But I, I lean towards the view that the, the Brexit extension, I don't think, matters that much. But I think that what might matter is the fact that holding an election in the winter when you have a seasonal NHS crisis, I think that that's going to call attention to public services in a way which is quite good for Labour. I think that's maybe been slightly underpriced in the commentary here. And I think that when you look at the, um, the, the Tory messages, which are already coming out, which is stuff like Britain deserves better and essentially running as a non-incumbent, despite the fact they have very much been making the decisions for the last nine years. So I'm not... Johnson has a degree of plausible deniability there. He has a degree of distance. But something we learned from 2017 is that you can't, like, hide a chancellor in a cupboard if you want to make an economic case against Labour. So if Sajid Javid stands up and says, Britain deserves better, then it's like, well, did Britain not deserve better in 2015 when you were also in the cabinet and were just like contradicting everything you're saying right now? So yeah, on balance, I don't know. I feel like my my faith in Labour to to do well in a campaign is very limited. I have a bit more, I have a bit more belief probably in the uh, in the shrewdness of the Lib Dems as a campaigning force. I think, but the. I think that the Conservatives are... I think it's looking not great for them, and I think that a December general election might shake things up enough to get a kind of Labour minority slash confidence and supply arrangement in place. I don't know. That's my instinct. Yeah, I broadly agree with you, Henry. I think the NHS crisis is inevitably going to come to the forefront. The only person I've really seen talking about it is, as ever, Stephen Bush. Um, And... I also think so. Okay, so I was tweeting about this last week, and I think there's something very uniquely Boris Johnson about a Christmas election, in that you couldn't conceive of either David Cameron or Theresa May calling a general election for Christmas. I think there's something because there's something fundamentally very weird and unreal about a general election at Christmas. There's also something very Doctor Who about it, which do not ask me to explain that opinion, but I think there is. Um, and 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 when I say something very Boris Johnson, I mean that like we're going to see campaign events where he's dressed up as Father Christmas. I very sincerely believe that the way they're going to reveal policies is having Christmas presents, and you open the box, and there's going to be a policy inside, and you can do that either digitally or in person. They're going to have events with kids. Henry, can you hear Henry laughing? Henry is laughing at all of this in the background. <laughs> um, that that he's going to be at events with kids, and he's going to give the kids a present, and it's like wow. 100 million for the nhs every month yeah you know like um and it's gonna be really weird and they're gonna like create this like photoshop art of like corbyn as the grinch the uh, male was calling I had corbyn a, the I grinch had a in today's wednesday's um headline it's gonna be so hammed up to the extreme um and it's gonna be really weird and i do think the electorate are just going to be really annoyed that they have to vote at Christmas. Another thing, again, I'm stealing Stephen Bush's take. Another thing which 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 they were discussing on, on last week's New Statesman podcast, which is something I hadn't thought about, was how people are more concerned about money at Christmas, which is a very good point. And those conditions do not lend themselves to voting for the incumbent government, particularly when economic financial issues have been so prevalent throughout the entire administration, the Conservative government since 2010, but particularly so now... Um, with concerns about Brexit and the economy, I'm not sure there are actually any conditions which benefit the Conservatives beyond the current polling situation. But like, how far can you 
how much can you trust polls this far out of an election campaign? I think like midway through it will become more obvious in the way that I think the hung parliament started to become quite obvious around the midpoint of the 2017 campaign and the way that Trump being elected sort of became obvious as well as it went on and did it with Brexit. But right now, I think it's just very... Right now, I think I think it's fair to say that the conditions suggest a treat. However, as we saw last time, anything can happen. Can I just say quickly on that, mm-hmm. that I think what's interesting is that 2017 has kind of wiped away our memory of this, but there's a look because it's maybe a counterexample. But as a rule, there is very, very convincing evidence from across the world that election campaigns just don't matter that much. Like people just aren't switched on enough in the news and they don't follow the ins and outs of who's up and who's down to the extent that it really makes the world of difference whether or not you have a good campaign, a great campaign or a mediocre campaign. And it's clear, I think, I think what's clear from 2017 is that if you have an utterly terrible election campaign, you can lose, but it's hard to win with one with just having a good campaign. And so what I'm what I'm kind of coming around to gradually here is the point that essentially I think that the government's plan for a December election is that the immediate circumstances and the like short-term past and future are what's going to bounce it into essentially getting a Brexit coalition majority and a uh, successful hollowing out of Labour's votes. And I just don't think that... I think that that's... I think that's too reliant on people understanding how Brexit is going and why Boris Johnson is the guy who will actually get it done. And I don't think that that's there. I think that if that when you look at when you zoom out and look at the fact that the government's been in power for nine years, wages are flat, the economy's not doing very well, the pound is plummeting every day, there is like a general atmosphere of crisis, there's this kind of feeling of tension, there's division. I don't think that the situation looks that so I think that people who are saying, like, it's one of these things where I think that people who go on and on about the importance of it being in December rather than in May or September or whatever are kind of trying to prove that their existence or their career has a point. <laughs> so it's like, oh, yeah, you're a political journalist. Thank you for telling me how who, like, makes their living caring about cam- election campaigns. Thank you for telling me how important election campaigns are. I'm sure that's a really unbiased opinion. Like, students will vote or students won't vote. It doesn't really... Like, if it's on the 12th of December or the 9th of December or the 9th of August or the 9th of never, that's actually kind of a minute point. It's like it's slightly trivial, and it? To get caught up in it is to get caught up in the here and now and the kind of minutiae of the day rather than the overriding factors so i guess that's my other take which is that like december itself might not matter as much as people think the real monster of the political journalists i've always thought that to be fair lines at that interlace who you would have heard on the podcast several times uh asked is nostalgia an unwelcome ghost haunting the labor party uh eugenia what do you reckon uh yes um i think that the the power of nostalgia in, in labor is is so strong uh, i think very early on in the social review we had a very good piece about um nostalgia for the atlee government and i think which i helped to edit a little bit um i remember reading that and thinking and it was kind of arguing that actually there were lots of things about the atlee government which we um which we don't really think about or like in a kind of 
we don't really engage with a lot of it. We just kind of think of like Attlee as like this. Obviously, he was a monumental figure in you know the NHS, and there's uh, so many things we can thank his government for. But uh, you know the kind of lack of any critical engagement beyond the kind of headlines of the of the administration, thinking about like the, uh, the partition of India or uh, Israel or nuclear weapons or NATO, or, like whatever it might be, you know. Um, especially, I think, colonialism, but uh, it's it's just, um, and it shows that how we all can be trapped in that, and you know, we always kind of joke about, you know, basically, it seems to be the way to figure out which faction of the Labour Party in is that which Tony do you miss more, Blair or Ben, and that will probably tell you pretty much what you need to know about a person. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I think nostalgia for a kind of a vision of a Labour Party of the past even if it's idealised or never really existed in the first place, obviously, which is always the deadliest form of nostalgia. Nostalgia for the Labour, for a Labour Party that once existed, even if it never really existed in the first place, um, seems to be imbued in the movement. There's always this idea that was like, a, you know, why, why do you think um, that picture of Jeremy Corbyn being arrested at an anti-apartheid pic- picket is so powerful to people because they perceive his position to be part of in a long in a long-standing tradition that has died, there's an idealised vision of what was, of what was once was, God, that's very hard to say, but, um, uh, yeah, and, you know, in the same way that, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, there are many people in the Labour Party who, um, think about kind of early period New Labour as a kind of golden era of, you know, election winning and government and things like that, and maybe also there are lots of things there they don't, they don't think about or engage with in any detail, so, yeah, it's absolutely the ghost, it's, I'm trying to think of the most famous ghost, but I can only think of Casper, but he's friendly, so that doesn't really work, but <laughs> more like a zombie, maybe, uh, the re- the zombies of, um, of Labour leader- leaders and Labour governments, uh, once gone, but we can never quite get rid of them. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? Like, nostalgia is just a really interesting concept in itself, because mm. the... Basically, obviously, like the origin of nostalgia is a Greek word, which, if I remember rightly, means longing for home. But the most powerful form of nostalgia is not the kind of distant homesickness that implies. The most powerful form of nostalgia is nostalgia for an ideal which you never actually experienced, like the LCD sound system lyric, borrowed nostalgia for the unremembered 80s, which I think is quite a powerful dynamic in left politics and always, probably always has been, to be fair. Like, I think that if you look back at uh, the kind of utopianism of left politics in the 20th century at least and across the world this is there's always a sense that the great battles were the ones being fought 20 years ago that the 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 um and that the leaders you want now are the people who were doing that because the young the young are in some way uh not ready for it or not to be trusted or perhaps you know ideologically impure and actually there's an element to which you get this quite interesting internal politics of uh of ideological purity being governed by accordance to uh, quite rigid dogmatic uh, ideals and in particular like figures of the past so like how much do you, you know if you're like in some kind of 80s university left splinter group then you might be like oh how much do you live up to Trotsky's ideals and so on and so forth and like it's not a million miles away from now when it's how much do you live up to this imagined version of Clement Attlee let's say that we have in our heads but the thing I always think is really interesting about that is that leftism has never won in the UK 
when it has presented a backward-looking vision. Like, there's never been a nostalgic leftism which has been particularly successful either electorally or ideologically in the UK. So, I mean, if you don't count Ramsay MacDonald in 1923, which I don't, because no. Like, <laughs> Labour's three governments, basically. So you have Attlee, who wins in 1945 on a programme literally called the New Jerusalem, which is all about... Uh, building a Britain fit for the modern world and fit for the post-Second World War era and uh, is suitable for the heroic achievements of that. And that's like, it's on that promise of newness, which means that you literally get an electorate to turf out Winston Churchill. And if there's anything which is anti-nostalgic, it's persuading an electorate to vote against Winston Churchill in 1945. 1964, Harold Wilson comes in in the promise of a white heat of technology and uh, tries his hardest, at least in his first term, to really aggressively prosecute an agenda of modernisation and essentially of saying the Labour Party is not the party of... not the party of the past, not the party of uh, kind of decrepit ideas, but is instead a party of new rational planning systems. That didn't work out that great, but I think it's an inspirational message. And then in 1997, Tony Blair comes out and says, you know, a new dawn is broken, has it not? And, like... It's easy to forget that Tony Blair's message in 1997 was very deliberately an anti-nostalgic one once again. It's a very deliberately uh, kind of almost a revolutionary message in that is like in terms of particularly, and this is actually, this is going to go off into a bit of a tangent. Part <laughs> of the reason that the Labour New Right, if you want to call it that, which I'm defining as like the Blairite centrist internationalist tradition has been so screwed over the last decade is because the as part of the Blair project, the Blair Brown project, the Labour's Labour's new right very, very deliberately and intentionally and effectively managed to erase their role in the Labour Party over the 20th century. So they basically managed to say, we're a completely new thing. We're not like the Labour parties of the past, even though actually the Labour right is a tradition which is, goes back as old as the Labour Party and like Blair is in many ways a very integral part of that legacy and he makes sen complete sense within the Labour tradition as a kind of moderating figure. But to make that message, he, had to t he felt that he had to take this very explicitly anti-nostalgic view where he's like we're like nothing that's ever come before we're sweeping away the old, the relics of the old and we're bringing in this new 21st century vision and so it's that which works whether or not it sets you up for the long term very different question but i think in terms of what the british left can tell us is that when you if you want to win you need to look to the future with optimism and with hope because otherwise you are not going to inspire people to make any changes to the status quo So I'm just going to say clearly that there is a spectre horn in Europe. Then you can say the Jasper version, and then I'll just do the actual thing that he is going to include rather than just cut out. Um, yes. <laughs> there is a spectre haunting Europe. It's Jasper the Friendly Ghost! <laughs> that oh, is not going it. in. Oh, I, <laughs> no, it's not! Oh, I hate I, I said it! I said it at my level of self-loathing, which is normally high anyway. Just, oh... <coughs> Oh, we hate, we hate to see it. Jasper, we're so sorry.